Welcome back to the EMS History, Myth, and Media podcast. This episode is about history again. I'm going to discuss medical specialization history and specifically review the history of emergency medicine as a specialty. I really appreciate you listening. Please stay tuned. Medical specialties now are the standard in America. Everyone's familiar with neurosurgery, urology, OBGYN, pediatrics, and the like. This podcast is about EMS, and so obviously I'll focus on emergency medicine, but specialization was not always the case in medicine, and its rise was actually resisted by some physicians who felt that doctors should be adept at every aspect of evaluating and treating patients. Prior to 1800, except for some physicians who did some more surgery than others, there were, according to medical historians, no distinctions between physicians regarding their capabilities and essentially none in their training. And so the 1800s was really when this began to occur. A very thorough essay on the rise of specialties in the 1800s was by George Weiss, W-E-I-S-Z, called The Emergence of Medical Specialization in the 19th Century, and I recommend it if you're interested in this. The first distinction, and the most obvious, is whether a doctor did surgery or only did treatment with medications or some physical manipulations. Surgery started in Neolithic times. We have evidence as skulls uh, who had trephination done with stone tools, opening holes in the skull for whatever reason. And the evidence shows that many of these holes had signs of healing, which meant that the patients actually survived this crude method of surgery. Surgical techniques remain somewhat crude, such as bloodletting, uh, to somewhat advanced. In India, rhinoplasty developed to replace the nose of criminals who had their noses cut off as punishment, but surgery was permitted to replace the nose, and so they developed these very intricate techniques to replace a nose. In the Middle Ages, many barber surgeons were common. Barbers would remove skin growths or tumors or do bloodletting. They announced that they did these surgical procedures by putting a white and red striped barber pole out in front of their establishment, and barbers still use this, although it no longer denotes that they do surgery. Physicians of the Middle Ages often considered surgery as beneath the dignity of their profession. But in the early 1800s in Europe, especially in Paris, the practices of medicine and surgery finally emerged. This split persists as the title physician and surgeon is still frequently employed and medicine and surgery is still used to describe what we do as doctors. My medical license allows me to practice, quote, medicine and surgery, end quote. Historical records tell of doctors who tended to do certain procedures or see particular populations of patients, and early distinctions included eye surgery, urologic surgery, and of course, obstetrics and gynecology. In those early 1800s, some physicians even announced that they limited their practice, and some advertised, for instance, that they did no obstetrics. In Europe during that time, specialization was trending. By the mid-1800s, a German doctor visiting in Paris commented on that trend of specialization, saying, quote, Incredible! Each organ now has its own priest. 
and for some, they even have special clinics, end quote. Some American doctors would travel to Europe to study. As I mentioned in a previous episode about medical education, in the United States it was still rather primitive, and so doctors would travel to Europe to get a better education. And besides getting more formal ed- education in Europe, the American doctors who trained there were exposed to the concept of concentrating one's practice to a particular body part or organ system or disease or type of patient. But in the mid-1800s, America still had mainly generalists, physicians who did a little bit of everything. And although they might have deficiencies in an area, and thus they would often get help from other doctors who they knew were better at some particular procedure or disease than they were, these doctors were usually just more well-rounded, older, uh, helped to train these doctors, and so they weren't actually specialists themselves. So in the mid-1800s, those distinctions between specialists started. In the United States, the earliest formal specialty in the U.S. was in 1896, and it was otolaryngology. Uh, Dr. Hal Foster formed the Western Ophthalmological, Otological, Laryngological, and Rhinological Association, otherwise known as the Wool Association for Western Ophthalmological, Otological, and Laryngological. And for the better part of a century after that, they specialized in everything from the neck up, And ophthalmology very gradually and relatively late split from this. Not until 1979 was ophthalmology a separate specialty. And growing up, I still recall doctors who were H-E-E-N-T, head, eye, ear, nose, and throat specialists. Also in those late 1800s, OBGYN started concentrating not only on women, but also infants and children. But they split off the specialty of pediatrics and then just began specializing in the treatment of women. Some doctors in OBGYN then and now associated themselves or hired midwives to do some of the deliveries. Around that period of time, psychiatry began, often with physicians just being hired to be administrators of lunatic asylums. In West Virginia, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was built around the Civil War in Weston, West Virginia. As I said, though, specialism, as it was sometimes referred to in the 19th century, was considered as narrow-minded and dangerous for medical science by some. In 1859, the Paris Faculty of Medicine actually rejected a proposition to create clinical chairs of specialties. And just as some distinct specialties appeared, others disappeared, such as syphilologists who specialized in venereal diseases, and others branched into distinct factions, such as ophthalmology branching off from otolaryngology and pediatrics branching off from gynecology. As with the effect of wars on the advancement of emergency medical services, advancements in medical technology and new technologies around World War I with the initiation of radiology and rehab medicine, they grew in response to the utility to addressing the war wounded. And in around 1913, Franklin Martin, MD, initiated the American College of Surgeons in Chicago, and they tended to call their certified surgeons fellows of the American College of Surgery, and they could add those initials after their name. As a side note, the first African-American fellow was admitted that year, Daniel Dale Williams, M.D., 
FACS, and Florence West Duckering, MD, FACS, was one of the first women fellows, also in 1913. In 1933, the American Board of Medical Specialties formed, and they set standards for training, for certification, research, and for continuing education. And the American Board of Medical Specialties now covers some 24 broad areas of specialty, as well as subspecialties. So after World War II, by 1950, the path towards specialization was clear in the U.S., While most physicians still had a general practice, a growing minority of doctors chose to specialize, and some specialty hospitals flourished as well. Now, of course, more doctors specialize than go into general practice. In 1969, family practice was recognized by the American Board of Medical Specialties as its own specialty. In 1970, saw the first family practice board exams. Around that time in 1968, as I've mentioned in earlier podcasts episodes, the American College of Emergency Physicians formed. A small group of doctors who were engaged in emergency medicine decided that they were going to form the College of Emergency Physicians and develop emergency medicine as a specialty. Around that time in 1970, Emergency medicine had no residency training program, in spite of the ASEP starting. In Cincinnati, Ohio, a medical student thought that emergency medicine should have a curriculum to train doctors to specialize. And so, Bruce Janiak, with, I have heard, the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Cincinnati, developed a curriculum and became the first and only emergency medicine resident in the U.S., As he progressed through his three years, the university formalized the curriculum and brought in their first group of residents of emergency medicine in 1972. Here in West Virginia, one of the early graduates of that residency, Dr. Bill Walker of Huntington, was probably the first residency-trained emergency physician in the state of West Virginia. I've known Dr. Walker since the mid-1980s and worked in EMS with him when we were regional EMS medical directors for the state for several years before his retirement. A very good reference about the birth of emergency medicine is a book by Brian J. Zink, MD, F-A-C-E-P, entitled Anyone, Anything, Anytime, A History of Emergency Medicine, for those of you who still read books. So in 1980, When I graduated from medical school and started out my residency and family practice, two of the most recently recognized specialties, family practice and emergency medicine, were the two board certifications which I held in the late 1980s and 1990s. You see, when a new specialty starts, in recognition of the fact that there were doctors actively practicing that branch of specialization when board certification began, those practicing physicians were allowed to take the board examination in spite of the fact that they had not done a residency training program in that specialty. This window to adopt practicing physicians into that specialty is known as grandfathering into the specialty. So in 1989, when I became board certified in emergency medicine by grandfathering. It also coincided with the birth of our twins uh, when I first became a father. After the grandfather period ended, 
The only way to get board certification within the American Board of Medical Specialties is to successfully complete a residency training program, and then you are qualified to sit for the board examinations, which you must then pass. Specialties typically now have several points of focus. Residency training programs, obviously, are part of it. The curriculum is specific to that specialty. A certification examination has to be formulated. Continuing education to update the knowledge base to reflect new developments. Research in that specialty. Usually a specialty medical journal publishing material germane to the specialty and also recertification process at some interval after you pass your certification to retest and if successful and you pass it you maintain your board certification. Most specialties also have an honorary status of fellow to designate individuals who have certification and have fulfilled some additional requirements. Thus FACS for the Fellow of American College of Surgeons, and in my case, the Fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians, I can put after my uh, MD. And doctors then get to add a bunch of initials after their name. Before I end, let me talk about subspecialties. The American Board of Medical Specialties on their website state that they have specialties in 24 categories, but these are not all of the specialties. Since the 1960s, a number of further divisions in specialty designation have arisen. For example, emergency medicine spawned an offshoot of pediatric emergency medicine. Internal medicine has a bunch of subspecialties which are obtained by doing further study after your general residency years in internal medicine. Things like nephrology, cardiology, infectious disease, and others. And likewise, multiple subspecialties exist under the surgery umbrella. Plastic surgery, cardiothoracic, hand surgery, several others. And they signify specific anatomic sites of practice, uh, certain disease processes, or procedures. And those are the focus of those surgeons. So, okay, let me summarize. Medical specialization began before 1800, but really gained inertia in the mid-1800s in Europe, and the idea spread to the U.S. After 1900, more formalized specialty designations advanced with the formation of specialty societies, such as the American College of Surgeons. And in the early 1900s, particularly after World War II, a shift started from most doctors being what was called general practice doctors to more and more doctors choosing to be specialists. Even general practice became a specialty of family practice, which has since changed its name to be called family medicine. As I've covered in previous episodes, emergency medicine essentially followed the mid-1960s reports on the serious lack of emergency care for victims of trauma. The late 1960s and early 1970s saw the birth of emergency medicine training, residency programs, become a specialty with board certification under surgery initially and then in the late 1980s being accepted as an independent specialty. My medical education in the late 1970s, my residency in the early 80s, and starting in the practice of emergency medicine in 1983 placed me not at the absolute beginning of emergency medicine, but I certainly caught the wave and surfed it through my entire career. The history of medical specialties is nearly 200 years old, but its infancy was really in the last 100 years or so, and the two progress of the 
concept has been probably since World War II. My chosen specialty is younger than me, but of course I'm 67 years old and that's not absolutely recent history. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the podcast EMS History, Myth, and Media. Thank you for listening. I hope that you find this topic interesting. And if you're an EMS worker, let me mention the whole of America is appreciative and profoundly grateful for your sacrifice and their critical work during this COVID pandemic. Others have been forced to recognize what those of us in EMS have always known. You are a vital service. Your work is tireless and it saves lives and reduces the effect of trauma and disease when people most need help. Bless you and thank you.